0: Uh, Maine. I'm trying to think I the last time I, I was there. I really, uh, I've been very close, but never actually got up that far north.
1: Yeah, it had been a while for me as well. I um, know someone who lives near here, but I, I, well, I'm feeling a little guilty because I haven't notified <laughs> notified my friend that I am in the area because I've come for different different reasons. Yeah, I... There's something very... There's something very strange going on. It appears. Um, maybe not. I don't know. I have to say I'm confounded by... By some of this activity... Um, that I... That I've... That I've heard about. I was talking to... Someone on a forum. The Sebago Lake region... There's a state park there. And um, there. there's there's this um, this couple that I started talking to that um, they live on the lake but there's a property near them that is um, a rental property and they know the owners but the owners live uh, down in Massachusetts and it's come up once in a while but um, you know they've kind of agreed to guardedly keep an eye on the property. They, they don't want to you know they don't. It's kind of a favor, and they don't want to find themselves completely responsible for what goes on there. So they've maintained a little bit of a boundary. But you, you know, just saying like, yeah, sure. If there's a problem, your 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 renters can contact us. Or um, sometimes, you know, in in between renters, they they will go in and like do some cleaning or whatever. But it's not. They're they're not really. They're not really of the mindset that they need to be completely watchdogging the property um, at all times. So, this had been going on for a number of years, uh, so they were pretty used to the homeowners were trying to kind of arrange not super short term rentals like weekends, or like they were, they were really trying to put people in their, their cottage that would like for, for, for a season there would be renters that would arrive that would usually be there for at least a number of weeks. And, you know, so they were used to seeing people that they didn't recognize kind of coming and going. But one season, I believe they said it started in the, the summer. Um, there were some people that arrived and just from what they saw, you know, coming and going on the road, um, there's a path to go out to the lake from that cottage that you would need to, you know, you would need to go right next to their property. So they could kind of see who, who was, who was around. It seemed as if there were three people, like a group of three that showed up to rent the cottage. You know, it's not a huge, it's not a huge property, but then it seemed to them that this group kind of steadily got bigger and bigger Um, within a relatively short amount of time. And, you know, it's not, like, it's terrible. You know, it, it wasn't anything alarming. Like, it's not terribly unusual to have, you know, maybe they'd invited some other people up for the weekend or whatever. But it just seemed like this was different. Like, it was this group that was steadily growing in size. And there were also other kind of strange things that were happening, it wasn't as if there was um, any real disruptive behavior, like a lot of noise or the group was not being disruptive in any way, but they would see people that that they hadn't seen before that they didn't recognize kind of wandering around the area and by the lake just at, just at odd hours, you know, like very, very, very early in the morning before it was fully light or sometimes in the middle of the night um, their dog would bark and they look outside and they would just see they would see one or two people kind of wandering back and forth from the lake to the cottage and just it just it, it, it just kind of was strange they figured it was just this this one group like you know they hadn't seen any more people arrive but maybe they did I mean um, it turns out later they're they're really wasn't you know this is a controlled uh, road and uh, a controlled access road because it's the state park, and um, there were no there weren't any records of of um, visitors or or anyone else coming to that to the house that at least could be traced. I, I don't know. It, it just added up to kind of an odd situation, but they dismissed it. But then they said that it happened kind of in a similar fashion the next, like, three seasons, which was, you know, there would usually be a group that would come in the fall, the, the leaves are quite riotously beautiful that time of year, and then it was more unusual for a group to come in the winter, because as you can imagine, Maine winters are... Terrifically difficult, <laughs> and just not for everyone. Uh, but some people really love it. Um, but they, yeah. So there were there were groups that came uh, concurrently after that that seemed to they were noticing the same effect. But they didn't really feel like their their place wasn't really to intrude necessarily, and they didn't think that the situation was something that they needed to exactly report to the property owners because, you know, it wasn't as if they were being bothered, but they, uh, they did end up going in after, um, after the spring tenants came and went and just to do, you know, once in a while, like I said, they do, they would do some cleaning and, um, they, they found in one of the hall cabinets, um, they found this sort of binder of, or this kind of book of loose papers, and it was tucked into this spot way at the back of the cabinet. It was kind of, it was kind of like, it was hidden. But it could also be argued that it wasn't hidden, it was just forgotten. You know, it, it just was very inconclusive and, and very strange. And they seemed to be um, these, these instructions with lots of, like, notes and edits on them. You know, it appeared as if these instructions were being written and rewritten and perfected and... Um, they seem to be instructions on how to uh, like conjure or create or manifest uh, something. I'm wondering, have you, have you heard the term tulpa? Making a tulpa is no easy decision. Your tulpa will be with you the rest of your life. You can start by thinking about a form or personality you want them to have. These forms and personalities needn't be permanent as it is very likely that your tolpa will deviate from what you originally intend. When you've thought about a form You can either describe these traits to the topa, or meditate on them for a while to install them. Try to visualize every detail of their appearance. Be patient, and remember that some parts can prove more difficult to conceive, such as a face. I'd like to tell you she spends a long time thinking, but she doesn't. She runs more on gut. She makes it, builds it, without judgment of herself. Which sounds right, but it's not. I will tell you now that it is not. She knows of a field. Not a field on its own. A field of breath, of elk and of No, this is a field in back, behind a house, always hidden from the road. She puts it there, for now at least, because this field holds secrets, because it sinks. It's beyond, on the wrong side. This field exists, and pink light bruises the sky. Even now, late in the day, even at night, snow on every thread of tall grass. The air is still, and she can hear the faint thrum of blood through her ears, and it's strangely warm. The frost is there, but she doesn't feel a need to close her coat, and she knows this house. She never lived in it. But she spent summers here for many years and some Christmases and some school holidays that weren't really there. They were just once in a while made. So if you walk around the side of the house and keep going, you come to the field, keep going through it, down the starving path, and you reach a littler house. She walks to the littler house. The goats, blank, roly-eyed, are up there tonight on the ripping roof. There's a woodpile, and they always scramble up. The peacocks, too. They follow the goats everywhere, like dogs. They fan and heat and mime, mime that they're eating, mime that they're scared. But that's not where she's going. Of the littler house. She's going beyond that. To the field behind the field behind the house. There's another house there. A littler one. A rounder one. Up on blocks like a broken car. It's darker back there. The sky is shutting down. She goes toward the tiny window light with purpose. See her leaning to look in. Through the dishcloth curtains, tiptoeing up. Inside, there's a small yellow kitchen. It's compact like the toy of a kitchen. A person stands looking down at the sink. I say a person, but it's really just the shape of one. I don't know what it is. It leans over, but sideways. Straight sideways like a fan reaches for something, a pan, a cup. The hand is wrong. She taps her knuckles softly against the vinyl pane, which itself is softer than glass. The sound is only small, but the shape spins around like an upcoiled spring, its arms flap down against its legs at attention. When it sees her there, it makes the widest, the most screaming, most tooth-white dinner plate smile. Well, you know this this idea of this this word "tulpa." Apparently, from what I understand, is Tibetan, and um, it's a Theosophical concept: this idea of a tulpa. That uh, there's a dizzying amount of of interesting and sometimes contradictory <laughs> information about these beings. Um, basically, the the quick descriptor that I have come across the most, and what seems to be um, in people's minds, is that it's it's a it's a kind of, it's something that you conjure from your own mind, but that once you conjure it, it becomes sentient. So the closest comparison is like an imaginary friend, right? Um, Except that, um, you know, if you consider that children, you know, it's, it's normal and healthy to, you know, kind of... Uh, Spend time thinking about and creating these imaginary friends, Uh, but, you know, really when it comes down to it, um, you know, no no matter how how real you may kind of want them to be, you you, at at some level know that that you still kind of control it uh, because it's your own creation. But the idea with the tulpa is that this is not necessarily so, and that they develop their own consciousness. Now, this isn't always, I guess, a, a person. Um, it can just be something a little bit more abstract, expressing emotion, like oh, they call it a, a thought, a thought form, um, where it's just kind of it's just a, a a manifestation of some kind of an emotion. Often, and certainly in this case, I mean, what I'm, what I'm the most curious about is this cre- creation of another, of another being, another person. Because um, it can actually be therapeutic, and this is, this is encouraged in certain, in certain circumstances. Um, you know, people want a companion. They're lonely, and they want to create something that is as real as they can possibly create it, to kind of be with them for the rest of their lives, even though there is this separate consciousness being developed. You know, it's it's interesting. A lot of this detail just kind of overlaps and contradicts because it's, you know, like, um, decide what you want your tulpa to be like, look like, speak like, smell like, you know... I. You know, you, you're, you're deciding all of these things about your tulpa, and you're making a space for them to exist in, that you've made. But, uh, but um, because, uh, you know, once, the, once they come into, I guess, being... Uh, you know, all this language is very slippery, but they may very much deviate from the tulpa that you thought you created. Or, you know, this space that you've created for them to exist in that you can go and visit them. (laughs) You can go to and visit them whenever you want to interact with them. And you are to, you know, practice interacting with them. Um, You know, practice going to them. Also doing kind of random checks on this space that you have created to, to see if they are there and they can respond to you and they can make this space also their own, too. They can, you know, it's, it's usually advisable to permit your topa to edit the space however they see fit. Um, so it, so it, I find it just kind of this fascinating blend of this is your creation and this is a creation that you won't have any control over once you make it. Uh, have you have you come across this i this specific idea in any literature or any uh any firsthand stories or lore or
0: what yes and no usually what i've read um it's uh yeah again it's like like a a um a conscious attempt to bring these beings into creation but i don't know of any stories that I've come across. The one thing this, this does make me think of though, is, um, uh, do you know the, um, the Czech horror author, um, Vlada Hoffman? Do you know, you know that, um? yeah, you know, but I, I, I only know that
1: one story.
0: Yeah. That's the, that, that's the one story that everyone <laughs> has read. And uh, frankly, I, I didn't read, uh, more of his stuff either, but I, I did read his, um, uh, a biography was published only in Czechoslovakia, I believe. But it, it's, his his death was so strange. It's it's when you talk about this concept, he uh, I don't know if you knew, you know, he he was very uh, in, in very poor health all his life, a uh, number of congenital problems. But the how he became uh, a writer interested in, in such dark topics that he wrote about was. Uh, and he and he would talk openly about this. His uh, younger brother died um, just a few days after being born, sadly. And he sort of became uh, fixated on this even as a very young child. And he began to fear a presence under his bed, which lasted his entire childhood. And uh, he thought of this presence as 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 a man. But he would imagine this man would wear this long gray scarf, and sometimes you would imagine in the, in the night he could hear the scarf sort of whooshing uh, on the floor under his bed. And he struggled with that for a long time. And but yeah, you know, as he got uh, past adolescence, um, he, he sort of became okay. And of course, uh, therapists would would recognize you know in that that imagery of the scarf, the gray scarf, they would recognize uh, you know, the umbilical cord imagery um, having to do with uh, the death of his uh, infant brother. But then, then inexplicably when he was, uh, I think in his late 20s, the terror of the, this man under the bed came back and he struggled with, it, with this for a number of years. It got very, uh, very intense um could not just could not get past the fear that there was wherever he went really that there was this man under the bed in, in, in the scarf. but uh when he died, he you know he was living in Berlin uh, at the time and he was you know he was he was in a rough shape, he was in very bad shape, he was had had some addiction problems, but uh he was supposed to vacate his little uh, slummy apartment. And the landlord wasn't hearing from him. And on the day that uh, Vlada Hoffman was supposed to move out, the landlord, ha- having not heard from him recently, went down to the apartment and knocked on the door. He wanted to make sure that uh, <laughs> this guy was, was, was indeed moving out. And the door opened, and there was this other man that the landlord had never seen. Now, Vlada Hoffman had not been uh, you know, living with anyone else. He'd lived alone. Uh, but the landlord described this man as very tall and very um, very like wonderful classic European manners, very helpful and almost jovial and saying something like, oh, terribly sorry that uh, Mr. Hoffman is inconvenienced to you in any way. He would just like me to tell you uh, because he's not present at this time that he intends uh, to uh, drop off the keys at some later date. As you can see, he's already moved all his possessions out thank you and, and have a wonderful day and so sorry to trouble you, sir. And with that, this this tall man closed the door. And what the landlord noticed right away and did not forget, knowing nothing of Vlada Hoffman's life at all, uh, that this man was wearing this long, flowing gray scarf around his neck. So he was dressed very well, but that was what, what really stood out because it was summertime. And uh, yeah, Vlada Hoffman was found. He was sitting against the side of the building. They found him like a day and a half later, just sitting propped upright against the building. He had died of a of a heart attack at age, I think, forty eight. Um, and uh, you know, all all his belongings had been had been moved uh, to 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 his next room uh, across town. Um. But he was dead, uh, and of this mysterious man in the in the in the gray scarf, there was there was no sign. So the story might be completely apocryphal. It's just the that one uh, the the landlord who <laughs> who allegedly told it. But it makes me does make me think of this this concept of the tulpa and the mind's ability to will something into being, uh, which uh, should not be. Imagine your tulpa in your head. Try to see them from any possible angle you can think of. Imagine how they move and walk. Think about the gestures they use. Work on their expressions last. You should not create a tulpa based on any real human, living or dead. If you are compelled to create a tulpa based on a fictional character, make sure to explain to your tulpa that it's not who they are, or who they are to become, they merely share that character's appearance. Some people tend to skip the personality step, and that is fine. Your tulpa will just develop their personality themselves. But don't worry, it is unlikely that their personality will deviate into something harmful. He opened the door and walked out into night. The street was still living, not leaping nor churning, but alive as a heart. There were tall, pale windows with diners and menus and clear beakers of water by their hands. There were people walking in clumps and people alone, and people gearing up to the next place. But it was slowing and thickening, and a few upturned legs of chairs were starting to appear, like heavenward pegs. As he got to the next block, he began to permit himself to register that he heard something behind him. Not something. He knew what it was. But he wouldn't turn around. He came to the stairs in the park and counted down, counted the steps before he heard the steps behind him. He began to walk in a zigzag pattern just to see, just to see what would happen. He heard the tap. scrape. It's not like he was trying to lose them, the steps. He knew he wouldn't. He just was stalling. He needed time to clear his head. He needed to think. He exited the park on the southern side and went down Commercial Street. The road here was wider, and the shops and restaurants passed with indeterminate skin between them. He turned into a cluttered, close-in store, He'd been in there before, usually when he found himself without destination. He made his way down the center aisle with the spoons and boards and the locked glass cabinets of knives. Coils and strains and whisks cast filament shadows behind them on the cork. When he reached the corner with the copper things, where it gleamed like the sun, he stopped there because the beautiful heat Because he couldn't not. Even if... Probably he heard on some level the shop door. He heard the coat behind. There was some breath or something like it. Shoes. He didn't move. Seconds passed. A minute. Two. Do you like that? The voice said. He had been staring at a copper pot with a spare, exquisite curve. Do you want it? He decided to soften, to relate. There was no fighting it anyhow. Not that night. Maybe not ever. But he didn't want to think about that. Sure, someday, he forced a little smile. But it costs a lot. He looked over the eyes so dark and bleaching white. Here, it said. It pushed out a handful of crumpled bills. They were crunched up, smashed, smeared with blood. Why? He was careful. But, oh, God, how do you have that? It pressed the sticky money to his palm. Some of it tumbled to the floor. I just do, it said.
1: Yeah, you know, I I, I do remember, of course, having imaginary friends and and creating them. Um, Like... For some reason, I think I wanted ghosts as imaginary friends because I would get envious when I would read these books and, like, ghosts would come around and, and you know, they often befriend uh, children, <laughs> and, uh, especially if they're child ghosts. I, I, I really wanted a ghost for an imaginary friend, but of course, uh, any amount of, of willing and imagining I could, I could do uh, did um, <laughs> never really manifested. I remember being a kid, and we had an attic, but we never went up in it. I mean, I think there were probably some boxes of things up there, but i I don't even know i we'd probably just forgotten what they were even i we just never opened the attic door. Sometimes I would think that I would hear noises up there, and i I thought that they were probably you know i i I imagined what could be up there, and i I think I kind of my my head assembled. Um, about two or three monsters of just my own personal most terrifying forms that I could think of you know what if I imagined a creature what would be the most terrifying set of features that I could imagine and so I remember when I when I started to um, get a little older I you know I fancied myself oh I, I'm old enough to stay home by myself I don't need don't need a babysitter anymore, you know. And I but I there was quite a an adjustment period to this because I, I, I really was unexpectedly expert at freaking myself out. And one night I remember I was I was determined to take kind of charge of my thoughts. And I thought, you know, if I I know that if I if I draw these things, if I draw these monsters, here's a way that I can take back control. If I, put these, if I take these monsters out of my head and I put them on paper and I draw them, then I'll take away... My intent was that I would take away their power. But what I, in fact, did was made them seemingly more real and more terrifying. Because then I could much more easily visualize them coming down out of the attic and down the hall at me. It was actually what I thought would be an empowering um, exercise was actually... The opposite, and I ended up, <laughs> I ended up uh, going across the street to my to my neighbors and and w- waiting out uh, my parents coming home. Um, it was it was not a triumph <laughs> that evening. Anyhow, I, I never I never used that again as as a device to, um, kind of take away sentience from my nightmares.
0: Yeah, I. I... I'm remembering now. Um, long time ago, <clears throat> long time ago, I was in a uh, I was in a train station, and a uh, sort of odd looking woman came up to me. And uh, I remember very vividly she just barely made contact with my elbow as she came around uh, to speak to me. And that, that became a very important detail for the story. But she looked at me, no greeting. And she said to me, are you sure you didn't hit that boy? But re- really emphasizing the word sure. Are you sure you didn't hit that boy? And I w- was at a complete loss for words, not recognizing this woman. And I, I fumbled for words or something. I, I, I may have thought maybe she was uh, destitute or desperate or something. And she just gave me a look and wandered away. And I was never able to respond. And I put it out of my mind for a while, but then I, I began to think about her more and more and what she said, and I began to draw this mental connection between that statement, are you sure you didn't hit that boy, was something that hap- had happened to me more than a decade before, where it, literally the day after I graduated college, the day after. I was driving along, I actually graduated in January, kind of an icy icy road, it was um, the day after some snow and some kids were sledding down a hill. And, and this one kid just came rocketing out of a backyard down this big slope right into the road. And I I made a little sort of deft maneuver. It was one of those moments where you're like, whew, you know, you, you shake it up for a little bit, but there was no, you know, no harm done. I, I just zoomed right past him, uh, swerved into the other lane, but fortunately no one was there, and I went on my business day. It could have been really bad. It was getting toward dusk, the light wasn't great, but for some reason that woman's odd appearance in the train station queued up memories of that incident over and over again over over the next weeks. Are you sure you didn't hit that boy? Like, why would this woman appear and and say that? And that bothered me for a couple of years. I, I one time, I was at, I was in a hotel hotel bar, and uh, I, I thought I looked over and I thought I saw something, and I, I thought it was her. I thought she'd come back, I, and I literally, literally spilled my drink. You know, it doesn't happen that often, that poetically in real life, but I literally, in that moment, I, I my right arm jerked in in fear. But it, it wasn't her. It wasn't her. And what I've come to conclude is that she was not real. I mean, her appearance out of absolutely nowhere, it was so, so odd. It doesn't make any sense to me. There's no basis in reality. I think I happened to be at a strangely vulnerable psychological time. I'd been carrying some, some guilt around about some other issues, and I think I created her with my mind just for that one moment. And I think the point of it was to get me to start looking inward about certain things. But of course, the the thing that does bother me, even though I I can't remember any, any details about her clothing or her face, it was a very, sort of a generic face, and that again plays into the fact that maybe she just wasn't real. But I swear, I swear, swear that she made contact ever so gently with my elbow as she kind of moved around from my back to my front. And that's what, That's what bothers me. Because if I created her uh, just as as a brief uh, psychological vision to aid me, then that's one thing. It kind of makes sense that my brain could do that. We do that in dreams all the time. But the fact that there was physical contact, I wonder in odd moments if she's still out there somewhere.
1: Talk to your tulpa. The subject doesn't matter at all. You can talk to them inside your mind or out loud. After your Tolpa talks, you can choose a voice for them. If they haven't created one themselves, you can create a completely new voice. But it may be easier to pick a voice you know well enough to imagine saying Anything. It started waking you up in the night. It scared you. From the yard under tree, to the walls with the sound of planes, up the stairs like snakes. See, you didn't think to make your home off-limits. You didn't think to make it away. Because why would you? So it came to the door all night, All night at practice talking. Who is it? Whose voice do I have? Then, lower, stranger. Don't bother answering. We all know. If you want, you can create a place in your imagination called a wonderland. This is a place... Where you can work on your tulpa. And the place where your tulpa can live. You can be there, too. You can do anything you like there. It's your own world. Let your tulpa edit the wonderland. They can change it and anything within it whenever they want. Just as you can. You chose a place you remember from childhood a low brown mall by the green, glassy river. It was always half empty, or three-quarters empty. It was empty, and then sometimes a few things would come in and then go. The things that stayed were a grocery store, a bar, and the sugar shack. The space you chose was once consignment, and then briefly housed a fabric store. As you walked in, the rows of white mannequins and grayish mannequins and cream and cloth form had become a sea floor and they covered the sea floor and it was like mouthless human candles in the coral and the sea. And out from among the heads and rotated hard wrists it leaned, your thing. For a second, you ate your throat. It came at you and put its arms round. Thank you. Hi, it said. Hello, 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 it said. Your pulse loosened, but too slowly, too tight. I have a surprise, it said. It took your hand. It led you to the back of the room. The old slatted door changing stalls. What? he said. He wanted to leave. You needed to switch this back to what it was. I brought someone new. A friend. My friend. A long bulb pinged. It reached for a knob and pulled. They wanted to meet you along. Long time. Determine whether or not your tulpa is sentient. Close your eyes. Tell your tulpa you're opening your mind to them. Imagine them walking through the door. Your tulpa can now see your memories, how you feel about them, and everything about you as a person. Don't do this step right away but wait until there's a trust between you so that your Tolpa won't take this for granted. Signs of sentience are 1. Tolpa talks back to you and has their own opinions. 2. They may communicate with you in other ways, i.e. through emotions. 3. Topa does things you don't expect them to do.